0: Welcome to the latest Family History Podcast brought to you by AGRA, the Association of Genealogists and Researchers in Archives. I'm Nick Serple, and today's discussion centres around the poor law, its institutions, and the records they generated. And on the panel today, we have four experienced AGRA genealogists. Simon Fowler, whose book, The Workhouse, is a sound introduction to the subject. Vicky Manners, who has overseen the digitisation of the Bedfordshire poor law records and researched widely. Clive Readman has researched the lives of children under the poor law, while Judy Lester is engaged on a three-year project digitising a wealth of documents and personal correspondence relating to paupers. Chairing today's discussion is the editor of Who Do You Think You Are? magazine, Sarah Williams.
1: Hello everyone, thank you for coming today to talk about our ancestors and their experience when they came up against the poor laws. I say poor laws rather than poor law. Simon, give us a bit of background to those laws and, and how they would have affected our ancestors because we're not just talking about the sort of Dickensian Oliver Twist workhouse, are we?
2: No, no indeed not. In, in fact, the Dickens is extremely misleading because conditions, as we'll discover during the podcast, in the workhouse varied considerably but were probably better than we, we might think. And also there was a lot more around for, to help people than just... Going into the workout. Poor law is basically a proto-welfare state. If you think of the welfare state today, where if you're in need, that you can get a pension or supplementary support to help you through difficult times, well, it, historically the, the poor law fulfilled that function uh, to a greater or lesser extent. There's lots of parallels between the poor laws and discussions over the welfare state today, uh, particularly about funding and who should receive. Support. So a lot of what we're talking about, you can find parallels today, even if the records have changed. It really hasn't changed very much over the centuries. We go back to 1603, which is when the poor law is introduced. For the first 200 years or so, it was run by individual parishes, but because that was the only way that you could administer such a thing uh, nationally across England and Wales, Scotland and Ireland have different ways of treating the poor, particularly the Scots. So the poor law is run by parishes. It is there to support people who couldn't work, mainly because they were ill or because they were aged or because they had for lots of children, and they couldn't support them any other way. Initially, it was done by out-relief, that is, pensions. Again, Vicky, I think, we'll be talking more about that as we go on. Because it's done by the parish, and because parishes on the whole were very small, everybody knew everybody else. So, again, it is quite an informal system, but in many ways quite rigorous. Judy will be talking about settlement and that sort of thing, which is a way of trying to ensure that the ratepayer didn't pay too much. And the thing we should remember entirely about the poor law is as much about the ratepayer, the poor ratepayer, Mm -hmm. as it is about the people themselves. Ratepayers object to paying too much to support people whom they regard as lazy and feckless. Those debates continue today. So it is very much about that. Initially, Mm -hmm. it was administered by uh, the overseer of the poor who was appointed by the parish vestry, made up of the local ratepayers and local landowners and that sort of thing, and the overseers of the poor would sort out relief, provide relief, agree what each applicant should get, whether they should get five shillings a week in cash or whether they'll get an overcoat or bread Mm. or coals or something like that. That worked very well up to the 1820s when we had a huge population increase, industrialisation and the agricultural revolution particularly meant that machinery was introduced so a lot of the Poor people, agricultural labourers, were thrown out of work and there was nothing to do to support them. There were various schemes, most of which didn't really work very well. So in 1832, you get the Poor Law Commission set up under Edward Chadwick and they revolutionised the system. All paupers thereafter, in order to get relief, have to go into the workhouse. That's what Dickens writes about. That's what's cruel about it. workhouses and the poor laws now administered by a group of parishes or towns or villages or what have you through what they call the poor law union admitted by elected poor law guardians most of whom were small shopkeepers all of whom were interested really in keeping the rates as low as possible so the
1: 1834 act we'll be talking about the sort of old poor law or new poor law the driver you're suggesting was more the taxpayer but i think there was some element of there was not everyone was being fairly treated as well by old poor law. So it was a sort of combination, wasn't it? Judy, you had something to say there.
3: Yes, I think there was a change of attitude in 1834 about the poor in general, and that up until 1834, there'd been, well, until 1832 and the Poor Law Commission's report, there'd been a feeling that it was compulsory to support the poor as a charitable thing to do. And after the Poor Law Commission had reported, there was much more A feeling that the poor should be divided up into those who were the deserving poor, which would be the sick and the elderly, and those who couldn't actually work to support themselves, and the undeserving poor, who were defined as able-bodied people who should be working, earning their own living, contributing to society. And there was a lot of feeling that the able-bodied poor shouldn't be given any relief at all and should be in the workhouse, as Simon has said. Yeah, Clive, you were saying.
4: Yeah, this is where I first raised the flag for my hometown of Brighton too, is that we have to be conscious too that a a lot of, of vestries and authorities Prior to 1834, it had already gone down the route. I can point at Brighton. There are two acts: one in 1810, and that's amended in 1827, Town Improvement Act, which effectively preempted the 1834 Act. But of course, by the time we got to 1834, they'd ironed out problems, which is why I think we we have to be careful when we look at the different unions. And the way they adopted the the provisions of the 1834 Act would not necessarily have been the same.
1: I think we can all say that probably everyone will have ancestors who will have had some connection with poor laws. And so one of the great things is that it was administered and created a lot of bureaucracy. And there was a lot of paperwork. And I know, Vicky, you were saying some of the work that you were doing down in Bedfordshire shows how many records have survived and some of the variety of records that people can find. I mean, where should people, if they're thinking about family, they think they might have had some connection with the workhouse, where should they look for that kind of record?
5: I would always say the first place to look is your local county records office because they are the people who hold all of the records for the particular poor law unions. So, say, for example, in Bedfordshire, we hold the uh, poor law union records for five different poor law unions. And they are absolutely fascinating in terms of the information they hold, A, for someone who's doing family history, but also if you're just more interested in researching the nuances of how different poor law unions ran. And then, in terms of the records for family historians, they are vast. You've got admissions registers, you've got discharge registers, you've got maternity registers, you've got information on if they were punished, what sort of food they had, children, say, for example, if they were boarded in, boarded out. There's a huge raft of information. One of the things that is really interesting, and I think it's quite important to know, even within a county and you've got five different poor law unions, what records you have for one poor law union might not be exactly the same in another, because it was actually down to the person administering or running the poor law unions to keep the records. So they didn't always keep all of the records. They didn't always hand them over to a particular county records office. So there is some differences. So do bear that in mind when you think you've got someone who's moving from one place to another, or if you're researching someone who's living in one county and another, the records will be different. So I think that's probably your, your best source, particularly after 1834. Simon was talking a lot about the old poor law unions, and then they were run by the parish. So, again, actually, your local county records office will have the information that relates to those within each individual parish. And, again, they're really interesting because they'll have stuff on, you know, settlements. But they're very, very good, I think, more than anything else for outdoor relief, because outdoor relief was one of the main ways that people who were poor, that were poverty-stricken, actually received help from its local parish and so you know we talked about maybe they had pensions but actually most of it was in terms of food it was in terms of clothing and it was just general more helping out because it was far more
1: charitable you're so, talking here about the pre-1834 we have to be sort yeah. of quite clear there and that, i sort of cut simon off early i'm sorry simon because actually it would be good to explain what actually made up a, a union Because I think we didn't really cover that. So we're talking about poor law unions here. What was that? Because we've moved away from the parish, which everyone, I think, understands what a parish is. What was a union?
2: A union consisted of between one, if it's a town, or even part of a town in some places, to a collection of a dozen or more parishes, often crossing county boundaries. I'm sure some of the Bedfordshire ones Probably include parishes in Hertfordshire or Cambridgeshire or Huntingtonshire or wherever. The thing to also is remember that each union had a great deal of autonomy. Some were much better than others. Richmond, where I live, uh, was always traditionally a very well-run, quite humane union. Whereas across the river in Brentford, the unions were pretty well badly run in Brentford um, and known for being cruel to their inmates. Everywhere is different. What did you find in Bedfordshire, Vicki?
5: Yeah, I was just saying that's a really good point that Simon raised, because they, would, they did have some autonomy. I think there was this common misconception, even though it was centralised, that everybody ran their poor law unions in the same way. But that's also one of the reasons why the records vary so much between one poor law union and another, and, and what you might find. I think I mentioned that a really good source was obviously your local county records office, but it's just important to remember from the family historian There are other records as well that you can actually have a look at. So, say, for example, if you're researching someone, your local family history society will have some information. And very often they'd have done some research, perhaps written a book. So that can point you in the right direction, particularly for a locality. So I know Clive and Judy, you know, you're good examples of where you're actually looking at a locality, you're researching into something in particular. So that's a good source as well to bear in mind.
1: We're talking to people here about the experience of how England and Wales, we should stress that this is England and Welsh poor law we're looking at, how they dealt with the poor and how they helped. And, and, you know, the idea was being humane, that was the plan, but how well it worked varied, as we've just said. But I think for us now, as researchers, as family historians, perhaps wanting to find out whether our family had a connection, what would be the first clue, in a way? Most people are now, they're doing their initial research, say, online. You might not go straight into the Bedfordshire Poor Law Records in the county record office without something that's suggesting that's a place to go and look. So, Simon, what, what are your thoughts there? You
2: know, I've done a lot of uh, teaching and talking to my students when I teach about the Poor Law. A lot of them find that they, there's family stories going down the road where granny died in the workhouse or or they discover that great-uncle or great-great-grandfather was born in the workhouse, and that leads in there. Or occasionally they'll find the mention on the census where you're called yeah. a pauper, you know, in the workhouse or something. Mm-hmm. So it is something that you will find. So, so looking at birth records, death records. Yeah.
5: Yeah.
1: Census. It's all, nearly
5: always on the census they see.
1: ooh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's true. And Clive, you were...
4: Yeah, you might always also find that on a lot of the military papers, you'll find particularly around the first world war the attestation papers look very closely at the top if it says industrial school or reform school there's a very good chance there is the connection and there you'll find children literally 14 to 16 year olds as boys going into military bands, etc. So there are very good clues too if you look for them and you know they're likely to be there. Simon?
2: Oh, and of course, the Navy as well. A lot of uh, ratings in the Navy start off as being boys who are in naval training schools who'd come from workhouses. Years ago, I was researching trawler men, a lot of them, surprising number of those, had been former pauper boys.
1: And I think it's the same sometimes with some domestic servants girls who are not where you would expect them to be and you wouldn't know how they got there so I think there's a lot of clues there if you can't see if a place of birth I know Peter Higginbottom's website workhouses.org.uk has useful addresses that actually suggest that a birth was at a workhouse so there's a lot going there you were saying earlier Judy about you working on settlement records and I thought that was very interesting because Obviously, these taxpayers, and this goes all the way back to the very first poor law, they don't want to be paying for the sort of feckless poor that they don't have to pay for. So how was that decided?
3: Yes, that's right, Sarah. It was quite a complicated situation with loads of legislation over decades that changed all the time. But the basic thought behind it was to spread the cost of supporting the poor, more fairly between parishes, first of all parishes, and after 1834 unions, because a lot of it was tied to employment opportunities. The agricultural parishes didn't want to pay relief to paupers who had come there to work for the agricultural season. Then when work ran out, they couldn't support themselves, so they didn't want the burden of that. And the same with industrial unions, where work ran out during the cotton crisis, say, in Lancashire, and suddenly loads of people were applying for relief. It was felt that the burden should be spread more fairly, and the ratepayers didn't want to be paying for the poor from other people's parishes. So they came up with laws of settlement, which actually go back to 1662, to as early as that, and haven't changed a very great deal since then, apart from these sort of bits of tweaking in legislation. People weren't necessarily born in the parish where you find them in the workhouse in later years, because they could be there for all sorts of reasons. Settlement depended more on family for younger people so that a wife would have the settlement place of her husband and that meant that her husband's parish would be responsible for paying relief and benefits to her and to her husband and to her children if they fell on hard times. In the old Poor Law, people would actually carry a settlement certificate around with them as they moved from parish to parish for various types of work to prove that their own parish would support them if they came into difficulties. Later on, after 1795 they didn't have to do that they couldn't actually be sent back to a parish unless they had actively applied for relief so if somebody from parish a needed relief in parish b parish b would look to can see whether they actually were eligible for relief from that parish and the things that made them eligible were they might have been paying rent in that parish for 10 pounds a year or they might have completed an apprenticeship in that parish or they might have been a hired servant there for a year or over a year, or they might have served an office in the parish, and then they would be eligible for parish relief. If they weren't eligible, parish A would determine that they should be removed to parish B. That means they would be physically sent back to the parish that was their agreed parish of settlement. They would often be taken to the border of the parish by a union officer, If they came from Ireland, they'd actually be taken to Liverpool and put on a steamship to go back to Ireland. And the results are that people were removed to parishes that were nothing to do with them personally, where they'd never lived before, had no friends, had no family to support them. So it was a a very challenging and difficult situation for people.
5: Yeah, and that's really interesting. And so we talk about the
3: conflict that went on, and that's also another way that
5: the family historian can find records. If the conflict was later on, say, hovering around after the 1830 Poor Law, then the cases or the conflict got referred to the local quarter session court. So sometimes you can find information on those settlement disputes within the quarter session records. So that's another good place to look. There's a general rule of thumb. It's not the same for every county. But the settlement would have actually been perhaps in the parish record. So, but again, it's a fascinating way to find out how someone was hoofed from A to B by actually
1: tracking the paperwork. So But one of the things you hear of is pregnant, unmarried women being sort of shipped off to be sent somewhere else. Is this a myth? Is this true? What do you think, Judy? Did they ship unmarried pregnant women off on sort of due date to make sure they had their baby in a different parish
3: well they did particularly under the old poor law because the parish didn't want to be saddled with the cost of bringing up the woman and her illegitimate child and possibly any other illegitimate children she might have so as soon as she was pregnant there could be a move to get her removed to another parish but after the new poor law was introduced in 1834 she was normally allowed to stay wouldn't necessarily be removed and the parish where she was staying would claim the costs back from the parish where she should have been supported. I think it was very hard and this is often why you find people in the census in workhouses at the opposite end of the country from where you might expect to find them because they've been removed under the poor law and often they came back and they wouldn't be removed again unless they actually applied for more help. But people were much more mobile than we would expect because of these pieces of legislation.
1: And I think sometimes one of the great things about sort of settlement and removal records, looking again at the records point of view, is they would often include all the names of the children and where they were born. So you can get a whole family history sometimes from these records. And we're talking again, we're talking about old poor law, So we're talking pre-1834, which again is pre-civil registration. So these can be very handy if you find them and if they have survived and if those records were kept. Clive, you've been doing work on outdoor relief and workhouses, but you've
4: been looking at other ways in which the poor law supported people. My main focus has been on what happened to the children we have had this view that of course you know the children would have been brought up in workhouses they would have been educated in workhouses and that set the scene for their lives now to a certain extent there was some truth in that but of course what you had allied with this whole poor law system particularly after 1834 is two real types of educational environment for different reasons. You had the reformatory, which was really about children who were up against the courts themselves, the 14 to 16 year olds that had been brought before the courts. So they could be taken away and they would be put in correctional institutions, which is what these schools were. Or you would have the more industrial type school, which was really about preventative action. Far more they're focused on sort of children often below the age of 14, for situations such as where they've been neglected, or they might have been orphaned, etc. So they were taken in, but of course what you then find is this tremendous reflection of the system of the time. The girls would invariably, in the industrial school type situation, be trained for service. So when looking at records and you see girls who are in service, etc it's worth looking back. Is it possible that they've actually been placed from an industrial school? Now, the particular school that I've been looking at is Warren Farm in Rottingdean in Sussex, still holds the record where we're talking about boys for the highest number of placements into military bands for any school operating under the poor law. It was almost, well, we'll teach you to play the bugle if it's good enough. Your next stop is Ulster. Some went straight to India, So you've got this again, displacement of children into the military, but into other forms of service and in trades and apprenticeships where they'd been placed by schools. So the service, if you like coming back to the question, was very much more taking the young and changing really their direction of travel. And we could always say that it wasn't always in the right direction but when we look at the prevailing conditions of the time, it quite often was, and some of them did extremely well. And Simon, you were wanting to say something about that.
2: The problem with doing the poor law is everybody reads Oliver Twist and believes it, (laughs) Yes. and it really wasn't like that. The workhouses in particular, and indeed I suspect the old poor law as well, spend a lot of time in educating the children really to ensure they didn't come back as adults into the workhouse. Uh, so whether they went to an industrial schools or, or whether they went to what they called monster schools or indeed to places like uh, Charlie Chaplin went to an industrial school up in Hanwell, uh, where you know, he was taught the basics, it, was, it has to be said the education system wasn't really very good, not by modern standards, I mean, it's very, very dull. Chaplin talks about that in his uh, autobiography. But for bright kids, it would help you get out the best example, I think, is Henry Stanley, uh, the man who discovered Livingston. who was a workhouse boy from North Wales, and
4: he did very well
2: for himself.
1: Is that what you're thinking, Clive, as well, that supporting that yeah, view?
4: Indeed, and actually coming back to the records themselves, one of those that he should look for and hopefully has survived is a placement register. It's been, to me, the most invaluable document I could ever find because not only does it give, of course, names of children... When they came in, when they came out, it gives their educational attainment and a little pen picture of each of them, which not only reflects, of course, what type of children they were, where they were likely to go, but also is a fantastic mirror into the feelings of the time and the system. The phrase that always sticks in my mind on one of them, Mr. Baldwin, young lad that went on to actually do extremely well in the military was a typical pauper child who proved them very wrong and actually Mm. probably died. His will probably actually reflected a greater worth than the directors that placed him in the first
1: place. (laughs) It's good to hear. And we have to remember, as you say, that that their opportunities outside of the workhouse weren't great. So (laughs) the Victorian era, there were a lot of people trying to do their best for them. And I was just Reading only other day about Maybe's, the uh, charity that tried to follow up workhouse girls who were put into placements into houses, domestic servants, and just check that they were doing all right because they were put in so young with so little experience. So it's important for us to try and and visualise that. I'm very interested in your mentioning placement registers, Clive, because that's not something I see at the moment being digitised by any of these big digitisation programmes. I mean, Vicky, did you come across placement registers in Bedfordshire?
5: Well, when we did the Poor Laws, because they wouldn't have been part of the Poor Law registers, because that's the project that Ancestry were doing, they would have been perhaps part of an institution. So in Bedfordshire, there was um, Carlton Reform School for Boys. So obviously, there would have been some information based on that in that register, But just going back to this notion of, you know, how positive they try to be to help children as an alternative to placing them into an institutional school, a lot of poor law unions, particularly for young children, they boarded them out to other families that were actually prepared to look after them. And they're really good records for that. So I know of one family where they turned up with the mother. So she went into the workhouse institution. We've got all the admissions registers. And the entire family were boarding out to different families. And they tried to do it, to board all the children together where they could do Now, they were a family of six, so that was a bit difficult. But they also, just through looking at the records, you can see they tried to do it so the children kept in contact with each other. And then when the children got to an age where they could be seen to be more useful from a work point of view, the boys got paid to do apprenticeships. They found apprenticeships that they could do. Again, with this idea, Clive and Simon, that you mentioned that they could go on to improve their life standing so they wouldn't enter into poverty again. And then the girls were trained to go into service. And then with the girls, they've got kind of records where, again, they followed them for their first service. One example is where they actually gave them a uniform and clothing so they could actually start their first service job, looking presentable as a way to carry forward Clive.
4: Yeah, and I'll just pick up on that and just use a a living example of a particular girl from Warren Farm who was placed in service four times um, over the space of six months. The, The note in the register was always, up until the last one, they didn't quite get on. It didn't ah. quite work. And then the last one's incredibly heartening. They have hit it off very, very well. Oh, and there lovely. she stayed. <laughs> so.
5: Yeah, lovely.
2: For
4: boys, there was
2: a variety of trades you could go into or be trained. But for girls, it's almost entirely domestic service. And yeah. so many of the girls had no experience of proper family life anyway, particularly up to the 1880s when she was boarding. When you, were, you, know, you grew up in the workouts, you were trained very, very badly to do basic cooking and cleaning and put out to uh, mistresses who on the whole would exploit you because you were cheap labour and they didn't care because if you didn't get on with them, they'll send you back and get somebody else in. For the girls, it was particularly hard
4: Again, I'll just cut in very quickly there, an example. Of course, one of the placements for girls was into not only domestic service, but it is a kind of domestic service, was into hotels. And very interesting when you look who the owner of the hotel was and whether actually they were one of the directors of Guardians, because they were in Brighton. (laughs) A particular hotel in Worthing did very well out of girls coming out of Warren Farm.
1: (laughs) And probably picked the best of the crop. Yes. Yeah, very difficult. What I'm getting the picture from all of you, really, is that you know, the information we might find online just says they were in the workhouse say if you find them in a census there's still a lot more stuff around it understand the institution and you'll get a much richer understanding and I think a, a richer experience as a family historian really going a bit deeper into the records sometimes we're talking about online records and we're talking about local records like this at Bedfordshire project that will be coming online so that's great but But there are some held centrally, aren't there, at the National Archives? There are some useful records there. Simon, you were...
2: Well, there are two sorts of records at the National Archives. Firstly, if you've got an ancestor who has actually worked at a workhouse, as a master or as a porter or as a a nurse, then there are basic staff records to be found there. They're not digitised, and I don't know why, because they would make brilliant online resources The other one is particularly useful is the correspondence with the central poor law commissioners or poor law board. Although a lot of those have been destroyed in the Blitz, the ones that survive are basically the correspondence from the poor law guardians to the uh, commissioners in London saying, uh, we have this problem, can you give us advice? Or we want approval to hire this member of staff or uh, an awful lot about auditing. These are financial arrangements as well. And amongst those records, a lot of them are pretty dull. A lot of them are, relate to individual paupers asking, you know, we have this pauper here, he doesn't fit any of the criteria that you've laid down, how can we treat him? Or the ones I've looked at, it relates to emigration people are collecting to say we want to send this active young man able-bodied man with his family off to Australia can we do this and can we pay for it out of the rates Sorry, yes Karen.
1: immigration is another whole topic and we haven't probably got time for, to fit that in but one thing I did want to cover before we come to an end something we talked about earlier Judy but sort of illegitimacy obviously unmarried mother babies and, and being moved with settlement orders but generally is there any hope for family historians? to find out who a father is if they're not recorded. We're talking later now on birth certificates, but what would be the angles, what can one do to try and find out more there?
3: Yes, if you have a child who you think was illegitimate, you'll often find that they were born in the workhouse and their mother was in the workhouse. And mothers of illegitimate children weren't allowed to be given relief outside the workhouse. They had to be taken in. And the workhouse would be very keen on finding the father, if they possibly could, so that the father could contribute maintenance for the child, so that the union and the ratepayers, that means effectively, weren't going to be saddled with the upkeep of this child. And they would go to great lengths. There would be a settlement examination where a mother would be interviewed about Who the father was, she may or may not have wanted to say, sometimes they do, and if she has said, the union would go to a great deal of trouble to try and find this father, and the relieving officers would be sent out to go round and ask about the father and see where he might've got to. And if they found him, they would issue an order for him to contribute maintenance to the child and that would be done through the courts through a magistrate's order and after a little while i think it's about 1845 somebody will put me right if that's if that's wrong um it became the mother's responsibility to get the father to pay maintenance and she personally had to go to court and get an affiliation order maintenance to be paid <laughs> it's just really all part of the financial situation money was everything and that was yeah. what determined what was going to happen and those orders you mentioned were called bastardy orders, and again, you can do a search for those. Yes, and you'll you'll find many of them indexed in county record office online catalogues. Uh, that was something else I wanted to mention when Vicky was talking about how well off the record offices are in poor law records. You, you can find a lot of them name indexed online just by searching the archive catalogue, and if you don't find anything, the thing to do is to actually contact the record office and ask them because yeah, a lot of yeah. record offices do have their own indexes on site yeah. of their or records, name index. They can tell you if they've got anything. Record offices will normally answer queries about their holdings free of charge so that the only way to find these offline records is actually to go and ask.
1: I think what we're finding is that there are a lot of records out there. What is digitised on this sort of main subscription sites is just a fraction. So, And some really interesting, revealing records you can find that will tell you a little bit of the story of your family. Because it was so easy to fall on hard times as well. We must remember that, that the workhouse was full of people who were continuously in and out of the workhouse and had a very bad chances. But as we have highlighted today, there are people who came out, Charlie Chaplin, as I mentioned earlier, but they came out of the workhouse. It wasn't just a sort of a breeding ground for failure, but there's a lot of interesting stuff you can find out there. Thank you very much, everyone. I hope we've inspired people to go and have a look at some of these records and find out more. And thank you to Clive, Judy, Simon, Vicky, and thank you to Agra for a really fascinating session talking about the poor and the records they've left behind them. Thank you.
0: And that ends our podcast on the poor law and its associated records. Go to our website at agra.org.uk where you can find more information and lots of sources about the subjects discussed in today's podcast. You'll also find a directory of Agra genealogists, all of whom are assessed by Agra's board and must work to our code of conduct. Good luck with your future research, and may your brick walls tumble.